the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. Glad that you guys are here hanging out with us. Uh, if you haven't gotten any water or coffee, please do so. I'm going to ramble for about two minutes. Uh, it's also really good coffee, thanks to Grind out in Edinburgh. Uh, they, they provide it for us. They do a great job. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm going to ramble a little bit. We've got a couple of things uh, going on, and I just don't want to I don't want to miss them, though I'm sure I probably will. The first thing that I'd kind of like to walk us through is, so once or twice a month, we do this thing uh, from the pulpit. We do this thing called Mission Moment. And a Mission Moment serves as an opportunity for us to kind of fill you in on all things uh, behind the scenes, or not behind the scenes, just really to fill you in on all things missional. Uh, we want to inform you. We want to educate you. We want you to get involved and participate uh, and partner with us as we partner alongside of other organizations that ultimately uh, serve in our city. Uh, one of the organizations that we have partnered with is called Young Lives. Young Lives is led uh, by one of our congregants. Her name is Holly Smith. Um, and a couple of the other girls help her out, and they do a fantastic job. Uh, Young Lives serves as a ministry, serves as an organization. It's a branch of Young Life, if you have heard of them. Uh, serves as a ministry that helps to uh, really partner with and minister to, to young teen moms. Um, and, and it really starts at, at, at the school. Uh, Holly is a high school teacher, and so she partners with other organizations. She develops relationship with some of the girls, and one of their big things that they, they try to do is that they try to aim to get these girls or to get as many girls as they can to go to camp for, for several reasons or summer camp for several reasons, and you'll see some of the pictures behind me. Uh, camp kind of serves as a, as a retreat kind of to get away from the, the, the normalcy of life and, and, and kind of enjoy being around other, other moms who are kind of going through same things. So there's some shared experiences that are going on there. Camp also serves as an opportunity uh, to get babies taken care of, right? So, so mom can get a break, mom can sleep, mom can hang out with friends. Uh, but most significantly, camp also serves as an opportunity uh, for uh, many of these moms to, to hear the gospel explicitly and shared with them and, and for them to receive discipleship as they are walking through um, man, early motherhood. And so this past, uh, I think it was in June, right? This past June, uh, summer camp took place and Storehouse uh, uh, played a role in helping uh, fund some of the girls, uh, helping fund really uh, the, the, this small movement of, of getting teen moms up to, it was north of Austin, Alice, right? It was north of Austin. Uh, so they got them up there to camp. Uh, Storehouse played a, a role in helping to fund getting some of these girls to there. But more than anything, I really want to showcase uh, not just Young Lives, but our Wednesday morning men's community group. It's led by uh, one of our deacons, his name is James Belville, they really jumped into all of the details that were going on to help uh, raise money and support to get these girls uh, to camp. And so if you run into James, he's on the second floor. I'm not going to look at him, but he's on, the, he's on the second floor walking around, uh, does a lot more than just lead our, our Wednesday morning uh, group. Um, anyway, his group kind of helped uh, spearhead uh, the funding of this, and it got these girls to camp. So praise God. Um, as a result, from what I understand, uh, 11 girls attended camp, and after hearing the gospel, four of them, them kind of came forward to ask further questions about the person and work of Jesus. And so that's a win because they're, they're curious about the gospel. There's obviously something tugging their heart. And so that's a, that is a big praise. And the women that went uh, with them, 
from Storehouse played a crucial role in discipling them and sharing the gospel with them and simply being available and present for them. So praise God for that opportunity. That's a big deal, right? Yes, you can clap. That's a, that's a huge, huge deal. That is a discipleship opportunity. That is a uh, gospel-shared opportunity. And so we want to make much of those as, as often as we can. Um, at this point, I'd like to transition into our time. If you have a Bible with you, uh, we're going to find ourselves in Luke uh, chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the rows or in the chairs uh, where you're at. That's our gift to you. Please take one. Um, in addition to that, if you're new, please fill out a Connect card. We'd love to hang out. Submit it in the offering basket. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've kind of started in one place of Scripture and then uh, kind of found ourselves in a variety of areas. Uh, for the most part today, we're going to find ourselves in Luke 1. We're going to look at a parallel passage in Matthew 1. So man, you might want to have like a bookmark ready on Matthew 1, though we won't spend a lot of time there. The majority of our time today is going to be spent in Luke 1. And so, uh, yeah, okay, well, sorry, I, I, I just had a brain fart. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I remember now, so I'm preaching. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this morning, hey, serious now, guys, all right, this, this morning, uh, man, I can't transition into seriousness, like, after having a brain fart. Um, I could do it. Thanks, Emma. You're cool. Okay, here we go. All right. This morning, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Incarnation. The doctrine of the Incarnation is both the great glory and the great scandal of Christianity. The doctrine of the Incarnation teaches that God became man in Christ, that he is fully God and fully man. As one church father once said, that without ceasing to be who he was, he became what he wasn't. The word, incar- uh, the word incarnation, you can kind of hear the root word, right? Carnal or carne, like if you've ever had tacos, who has tacos, right? Everybody, right? You put, you put meat in there, right? You put carne, right? Carne asada, right? Okay, what does that mean? It means meat, right? You kind of put that in context, the doctrine of incarnation, meat, flesh, bones, right? That God became man, all right? You guys with me? Cool. All right. Good. Thanks. Thanks, babe. It's my wife. Man, we're just all over the place today. Nevertheless, we're looking at the doctrine of the incarnation. And in, in fact, I kind of want to give you like a preview, not necessarily a preview, but I want to give you this, this glimpse of where we're headed over the next two weeks because the doctrine of the incarnation is incredibly important. And I would add that this is a doctrine that often doesn't get talked about but once a year. Oftentimes, when we start talking about the doctrine of the Incarnation, we start to think about uh, Christmas and, and uh, you know, the, the, the birth and the coming of Christ during the Advent season. And so as a result, this isn't Christmas in July, but as I mentioned, this doctrine needs to receive attention because it's incredibly important to the Christian faith. Today, we're going to be addressing this doctrine. Next week, we're going to be addressing the uh, substitution The following week, we're going to be talking about the resurrection, all this laid out in the Apostles' Creed. And it's incredibly important because you can't talk about the resurrection and ignore the substitution, right? You can't talk about the substitution and ignore the incarnation. Like each one of these matters. 
And so the creed states, the section that we're looking at this morning, the creed states that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. As a church, we affirm this statement, not because it is Scripture, but because it points us to Scripture. As we look through the creed, we can see that they're pulling these statements as a result of their time spent in the Word of God. Further, oftentimes in sermons, right, we're always anticipant. I know sometimes I am, even when I'm not preaching. We're anticipant of the transition where the pastor or the preacher gets to the implications and the practical stuff, and here are four ways to do this, and here are ten things to remember that. And, uh, and sometimes we can lose sight of what is really the centrality of that message. And the truth is that Many sermons aren't always going to lead to this list of things to do. Some sermons ought to lead us to this place where God is exalted, where God is glorified, and we are reminded of that. God is glorified, God is exalted, God is adored, and we are humbled. This is one of those sermons. This is one of those doctrines where the only practical application is belief. The only practical application that we're going to inevitably zero in on this morning is going to be belief. And so with that being said, let me read Luke 1. We'll dive into our time after I pray. Beginning in verse 26, Luke writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, a child, therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let me pray. God, as we come before you in worship, in worship of your word, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this time. I pray that as we look at the doctrine of the incarnation, that this, and because there isn't this like how-to list, God, I pray that we would be attentive to what you have to say through us or what you have to say to us through the Holy Spirit. 
God, I pray that through this doctrine, for those who know you, that they would come to a place where they would know you better. That this would be a reminder of your work done for us in Christ. That this doctrine would inevitably lead us to worship you, to adore you, and for us to be humbled before you. God, I pray that through this time that those who don't know you would come to know you through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The first thing I want us to look at, or the first thing where I want to begin is, I want us to begin by considering the work of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're taking this directly from uh, the phrase in the creed that says, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And in case you didn't know, we're walking through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and so I want to take this phrase, and I want us to zero in on a couple of things. The first thing that I want us to zero in on is the work of the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus. See, when we see the phrase conceived by the Spirit, it means divine intervention. You see, the birth of Jesus is not only a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, but it is a new work of the Holy Spirit. It is an anticipated work of the Holy Spirit, an anticipated work of promise made by God that didn't start in Matthew or Luke, but started back in Genesis. When we go back to the pages of Scripture, and in particular when we go back to Genesis, we see that God tells Adam and Eve, I am sending someone that he will be born of the woman's seed. We see God at work throughout the story of redemption all the way back from the beginning and not just here. We see him at work, for instance, in the lives of Abraham and Sarah when he says that they will conceive a son. And what do they do? They laugh. Yet God is still at work in and through them. We see him at work throughout the story of redemption in Miraculous births with Abraham and Sarah. We see it with, with the birth of Samson. When Hannah, and if you read First Samuel, it, it, it reads that she could not uh, have any kids, yet God still does a work. And here we have Samson. We see the work of the Spirit throughout the prophecies from the prophets when they continually say, not only repent and return, but the coming Messiah is on His way. That one day the Christ will be here and he will save his people. We see the Holy Spirit at work throughout the entire story of redemption, not just in this instance. But this instance, though miraculous, is also a new work. Well, how is it a new work? Well, it's a new work because we are all created. If we go back to the beginning briefly, we are all created in the image of God. Doesn't matter who you are, we are all created in the image of God. This is what gives us value and dignity. And we are all corrupted and stained by sin because of the curse of Adam. 
that our world is both beautiful and broken. And so when we come back to the work of the Spirit, what we are seeing is that this work of the Holy Spirit is bringing forth a new humanity through Jesus. Where you can be born again by the Spirit, have unity with Christ, and fellowship with the Father. It's as if the words of the Apostle Paul clearly apply to this in Romans 5. He writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that was through Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This work of the Holy Spirit is not just miraculous, and it certainly only isn't anticipated. It is also a new work. It is a new work. Because it is through Jesus who will live a sinless life and die the death that you and I deserve. It is through that that we will be given this opportunity to receive grace. And so we see the Holy Spirit at work. And I think oftentimes when we read or flip through the pages of Scripture, and I understand why we do this, but when we look at the Old Testament, we kind of categorize it as, yeah, God the Father, that's his section. And when we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yeah, that's the section of Jesus. And then when we look at everything else, uh, all of the different epistles, from Acts to Revelation, we see, yeah, the, the main character here is really the Holy Spirit. And what we see through this phrase and what we see in Luke is that the Holy Spirit is at work the whole time. In other words, the Trinity is always in sync. The Trinity is always in sync. And through Jesus, you can have new life. You can receive a new heart. You can be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there mystery? Yes, you should have a bucket of mystery that doesn't make it untrue. Okay? So once again, through the work of the Spirit, He is bringing forth a new humanity through Jesus where you can be born again by the Spirit, have unity with Christ, and fellowship with the Father to be restored and reconciled to God as it ought to be. Further, Conceived by the Holy Spirit, we see his work in the birth of Jesus, but then it also leads us to this place where we ought to talk about the person of Mary. And so there's a couple of things that we should consider when it comes to the person of Mary, but then there is one or two things that I'd like to clear up when it comes to the person of Mary. See, the virgin birth is not the Immaculate Conception. Now, some of you may have a Roman Catholic background, and the Apostles' Creed may have been something that you recited when you were younger or as you grew up in the church. And one of the doctrines that at times, if not regularly, is taught is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. So let me tell you what it is. Well, let me tell you what it isn't. Let me tell you what it's not, and then we'll keep moving forward. So the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is a doctrine taught by the Roman Catholic Church concerning the birth of Mary, not Jesus. Okay? 
concerning the birth of Mary and not Jesus. And it teaches that Mary was sinless because only someone who was without sin could carry Christ. As a church, we deny the teaching of this doctrine because of what we learn about Mary. So that's where I now want to transition our time into. But I also want to ask you a couple of questions in light of Mary's character. So the first thing that we learn is that Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior. Like the rest of humanity, Mary was in need of a Savior. She wasn't exempt from the curse. And we see this. And her praising God after she receives the news. Also in Luke 1, she says, and Mary, Luke writes, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Yes, Mary was holy. And when we look at the context of God saying that you are holy, be holy because I am holy, we spent like two months on the pursuit of holiness when we walked through 1 Peter To be holy is to be set apart by God. And so, yeah, Mary was holy. And if you're a Christian and you belong to Jesus, so are you. Cool. We got that out of the way. Number two, yes, she is blessed, absolutely, because of the privilege that God bestowed upon her. But what I want you to catch, what I want us to learn from Mary, is that she was honest about needing a redeemer. More than anything, she was honest about needing a redeemer. Though she was bestowed this great honor and privilege, at the end of the day, she was a sinner in need of a savior. That's the first thing. The second thing I want us to learn from Mary is that she was a humble and obedient servant of the Lord. Listen to her reply after hearing the, the news from the angel toward the end. This is verse 38, also in Luke 1. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary was a humble and obedient servant of the Lord. Check it. By faith, Mary received the news that she was to carry Jesus in her womb. By faith, Mary obeyed God through the angel. By faith, Mary submitted to the Word of God. By faith, Mary surrendered herself to the will of God. By faith, Mary humbled herself. She humbled herself. Mary is a beautiful example of godliness and the pursuit of holiness as a result of God's work for her. So the question is, how can we be more like her? Taking those two things, man, her honesty and conviction and knowing that she needs a redeemer, and then her humility and her submission to the Lord, and how can we respond like that? What, what needs to change in the condition of our heart to respond like that? Because check it, it's not like she wasn't confused. What did the angel say? You're going to have a son. You're pregnant. And she was like, do you know how this works? Like, I get it. You're an angel. You were sent by God. You're cool. There's a couple of things that are a little bit different on earth. 
do you know how this works? Right? It's not like she wasn't kind of tripping. But at the same time, we also don't know what the conversation was like between her and Joseph. Like, that's not recorded. You talk about an awkward conversation. Like, on this side of Scripture, we could be like, yeah, divine intervention. She had a hard conversation. She's like, so, Joe, like, God, right? And miracles. Like, that stuff happens, right? And he's like, yeah, okay. Hypothetically, what if a girl got pregnant without having sex with a man? And he's like, that's not possible. Funny story. Let me tell you what happened earlier this morning. Right? Like, that's not recorded in Scripture. But further, what we see is her submission and her surrender and her obedience by faith. We talked about this last week when it came to, or when it comes to, submission to Christ's Lordship. That we obey, we submit, and we surrender. Even when we have questions, even when we're a little confused, we move forward as those questions are coming up. Like, it's okay to ask those questions as you move forward. Just don't make excuses. Like, she didn't make an excuse here. This is kind of a recap from last week. She didn't make an excuse when she says, man, let, let it be according to your word. She didn't say, well, I, gotta, I don't know how I feel about this. Let me think about this. Like, I got I to gotta wrestle with this. Man, she had some questions. There was some confusion, and she moved forward. One of the things that we discussed last week is that when it comes to this kind of stuff, when it comes to submission and surrender to the will of God, We love to come up with excuses like, well, I want to check my motivation. I got to check my heart and I got to do this. And we do all of these things to put it in this bucket of justifying our actions or justifying our disobedience. I'm not saying we shouldn't check our heart. I'm not saying we shouldn't check our motivation. I'm not saying that. You can go back to last week and and hopefully I'll clear that up. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that oftentimes we use that, we use gospel-centered language as an excuse to justify our disobedience. That's what makes it so dangerous. Man, I got to check my heart. I got to read my Bible. I got to do all of these things except be obedient. And what we see Mary, she just gets, like, we could say like, oh man, she was blessed. I don't know if she was thinking that that right at that minute. Man, I got to talk to my husband like an angel just appeared to me. Like, what's going on? And yet her response is, let it be to me according to your word. How can we be more like Mary? This leads us, this leads us into what's often called the scandal of the gospel. Now here's what's interesting about this. The scandal of the gospel though this is a part of it, but the scandal of the gospel is more than a teenager being mysteriously pregnant. Like, that's, that's kind of trippy. They had to be in public with one another. Like, what does Joseph say, right? We can think of all those things. But the scandal of the gospel is more than that. The scandal of the gospel, the real scandal, is that God became man. To not only be among us, 
but to live like us, to suffer like us, and to die for us. The scandal of the story of redemption is that God became man in Christ to save the unworthy and the ungodly. The doctrine of incarnation, of the incarnation, is incredibly important because it teaches that God, without ceasing to be who he was, became what he wasn't. It teaches that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Theologically, this is heavy. It's heavy because this makes Jesus both redeemer and reconciler. This means that God becoming man restores the image of God. It means that God becoming man restores fellowship with the Father. And if this is untrue, then he is not God with us, right? The translation of Emmanuel. Then he's not God with us. He's just one of us. And so there are dangers when we only see him as human or only see him as God. But there is great comfort and conviction when we see him for who he is, both God and man. Fully God, fully man. Not 50% here, 50% here. Like fully God, fully man. Here's one of the, the problems. Here's one of the problems if we view him as human only. See, if we view Jesus as only human, then he's nothing more than an example. He's nothing more than an example, and he's part of the problem. That humanity needs redemption. Humanity is in need of a savior. That man must be reconciled to God. And if he is only human, then he is simply a part of the problem making him unsuitable to save sinners. In addition, if we view him as God only, then most of the time he is viewed as a distant deity that looks at us like, uh, like we're ants and he's a kid with a magnifying glass. Therefore, he is irrelevant, he is irreverent because he can't relate to us. He's distant and cold and mean and far away. What does he know about being human? About being one of us? Enter the Apostle Paul. I don't have this on my notes, but this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. That's what he says. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 16. He writes, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll talk about that in a minute. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had to be fully human for multiple reasons so that he would identify with us. That's number one. When you read through the pages of John, he says that the word became flesh. And one of the things that he says, I think it's in verse 11, that the word dwelled among us, that Jesus moved in. So he had to identify with us. And all the things that go on, Jesus got hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to have a good meal, what it is to laugh with friends, what it is to hang out. He knows what it's like to work. He identifies with us. Jesus sympathizes with us. The writer of Hebrews at the end says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Have you ever been tempted? When does that cease? When you give in? Most of the time. All the time, probably. Right? And there's repentance and there's confession that takes place. Yes, 100%. Check it. Jesus understands temptation, but never gave into it. That's crazy. So there's this part where he's like, man, I get it. I understand. I get what you're going through. And for us in our weakness, often we give in. Don't call it struggle if you're giving in. You know what I'm saying? Jesus sympathizes with us, but in a way that he never gave in to temptation. Like the pressure was there. The temptations were there. And he never gave in. And he sympathizes with us. Jesus suffers like us. A while ago, I just mentioned like, yeah, Jesus knew uh, a hearty good meal. He knew work. He knew what it was like to hang out with friends. He also knew what it was like to be betrayed by his friends, to be abandoned for his family, which includes Mary, to think that he's nuts and crazy. to be hunted by or persecuted by the Pharisees. He knew what it was like to feel alone, yet he suffered like us, not just in those circumstances, but suffered for us on the cross, even to the point of death. Jesus was fully human, and Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God because he alone was not only the perfect sacrifice, but he alone is the one who's suitable to satisfy the wrath of God on our heads. The wrath of God that all of us deserve outside of Christ, he bore himself. That's propitiation. Not only does he stand in our place dying for our sins, he then secures salvation for sinners. That if you turn to him in belief and repentance, you would be redeemed. You would be made new. 
But this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the full extent of propitiation. That God took on our debt and in exchange gave us his credit. He took on and became our unrighteousness and in exchange gives us his righteousness. This is called the the great exchange. Jesus was fully God. Jesus redeems sinners through his work on the cross and reconciles sinners to the Father. And so if you're a Christian, you say, man, I belong to Jesus. May this be something that never gets old. May this be something that when you hear it come up in a sermon or you read it in your Bible or in your book, like, oh yeah, I know that. No, then you don't. Then you don't get it. And so if you belong to Jesus, as we listen to this and as we worship throughout our time together, may we receive this with a posture of humility that would lead us to worship God, to adore God, and to fall to our knees and glorify him. And if you don't know Jesus, man, I'm so thankful that you're here. And he invites you to come to know him. The question often is, well, what do I get? You get a new heart. Your mind is renewed. Circumstances may not change. I'm not going to lie. But you're going to look at everything through the lens of the gospel now. Here's the the closing statement. Church, here's the real scandal of the gospel. The scandal of the gospel is grace. That God became man to save the ungodly and the unworthy. Let's pray. God, as we close our time of the preached word, Holy Spirit, would you take your word and pierce our hearts with it? That in spite of our circumstances, in spite of the things going on, even some of the questions and maybe some of the confusion that we might be experiencing, that number one, we would be receptive to your work, and number two, that we would respond like Mary. Let it be to me according to your word. God, may we submit and surrender ourselves to your will for your glory and our good. May the doctrine of incarnation never be something that is just reserved for a holiday. I pray that this would never be something that's just reserved for December, that it's just reserved for special occasions. But this doctrine preaches the glory and scandal of Christianity, and that is that you sent your son to enter into human history as the man Jesus Christ, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary and the inevitable scandal of your gospel is your grace that you save sinners that you save 
the ungodly, that you save the unworthy, because you are a good and loving God. Lord, as we transition our time into tithes and offerings, God, I just pray that our hearts would continue to be softened so that we would give sacrificially, because the work of Jesus is the ultimate standard, that he gave everything. God, that we would give faithfully, because Jesus is faithful to us, and that we would give cheerfully, man, that you give your kids good stuff, because you are a good father. May this be a reflection of your work for us and in us, to your glory and for our good. Amen.